We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. We are in Romans this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, we have the text in your order of worship in that little bulletin. Um, But if you don't own a Bible... If you're here and you're checking out Christianity or checking out the church, or maybe you just, you know, the last time you were in church, it was when you were yay big, and the only Bible you got in your house is grandpappy's, and uh, it's, it's got more these and thous than anything you've ever seen. You can't really understand it. Then uh, we have a little more modern translation that's in the back. That's our gift to you. Grab one, take it, uh, read it. That's, that's what it's there for. Um, we'd love for you to have it. If you want to grab it now, great. If you want to wait, that's cool too. Uh, but let me remind us what we're doing here. So we come into the home stretch on this series that we're calling Missional Conversations. Uh, let me review a little. Because what we've been doing is we've been looking at the whole Bible, right? Uh, the whole Bible to see this theme, this theme of being on mission, of God being on mission and Him sending His people on mission. And we've, we've looked at the whole Bible to see how this has developed. And, and we began with the promise of mission in Genesis 12, that when God redeemed his people, and he began that work through the person of Abraham, that, that he blessed him so that he would be a blessing. Remember that? Some of you are here for that. Uh, that then, we, then we looked at the book of Isaiah and Isaiah 49 for the scope of mission, that, that God brings us in for those who are out, right? That God doesn't bring us in just to kind of let us absorb blessing. He brings us in for the sake of those that are out. Uh, and then we began to look in the New Testament to see Jesus promises to build his church and that he sends his people, not his professionals. And then we turn to see who Jesus came for, right? Those that see their need. Uh, and as, as we finish these last five sermons in this series, like I said before, we're going from the 30,000 foot view down to the, down to the ground level. Something a little more practical. Uh, this week we look at the message. Because it's all well and good. It's all well and good if we're convinced utterly that we, we have been called out to go out on mission to others, but unless we're very clear on what exactly that is going to entail, what exactly we are to, to go with, what message we're to go with, it's all going to be for naught. So what is it that we're supposed to say? What is it that makes a Christian? And that's what our text hits us with this morning. So if you have your place in Romans chapter 10, um, our habit here, if you're new, is we stand in honor of uh, God's word as we come under the preaching of it. We're, gonna, we're in Romans 10 verses 9 to 17. This is God's word to us, friends. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless 
They are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So it is that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come into this place with lots of different stories. And before I even get on to what we're about to do, I just want to pray. because there are folks in our congregation who are hurting and are in, who are struggling right now. So I just want to pray for the Nadines, that you would give them peace and that you would be with their little daughter. You would bless her and that you would heal her. And um, I've been a parent at UVA with a child and it is awful. And so I, I pray that you would give them grace and faith to walk with you in the midst of this. As a congregation, we, we ask you for your mercy towards them. And now as we come to this time, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you. That, that with ears that are unstopped, we can hear your voice. That with eyes that are uh, opened, we might see your glory. And that with hearts that are soft, we might receive you. For Lord, no matter where we are this morning, whether we are We've been walking with Jesus for years, or whether this is our first time in church ever, we all need the same thing. We need the gospel of Christ, and we need it to dig deep into our hearts, and we can't do that without you, and so, Spirit, we ask that you would do that right now. Let Jesus and all that he is and has done come to the forefront, and let the one who speaks, Lord, fall to the wayside. You alone hold the words of eternal life, and so we come to you now and ask that you would speak them in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So here's one of the things um, that Christians do that bugs me. Uh, Maybe you're like me and this bugs you too. If you're one of the Christians who does this, just play it off. Nobody knows, and uh, it it won't matter. Um, But have you ever gone to a restaurant or to a store, and you see like one of those little booklets sitting somewhere. Maybe someone has left it as a tip instead of money for their server. Or um, if you're a dude, you've probably seen this. At, at times, I see them left on the top of urinals. On a urinal. Like, who thinks to themselves, you know, I got a few seconds. I'm going to read this like while I'm standing here. Like, who thinks that? I. Um, <sighs> Anyway, even if they did, even, even if they were thinking that, I mean, there, of all places, like, no, no. So one of the reasons that it bugs me, though, is because I've picked up these tracks, not the one on the urinal, but I have picked up these tracks before, and you're never really sure what they're going to say. Because what, what they say is something having to do with Christianity and about Jesus, and then on the inside, you're not really, it could be anything. I mean, it could be, uh, you know, what you need to do to be a Christian is, be, is accept Jesus, be baptized, and keep, keep the Ten Commandments. I've seen that. I've seen ones that talk about Jesus and then goes on to talk about aliens. That's really weird. Uh, then, then there are some that, you know, talk about, um, you know, becoming, becoming a god somewhere. As long as you do these simple steps. Oh, and Jesus comes in there somewhere. It, I mean, if you're a non-Christian, maybe you've seen these and you're like, this is, this is what proves to me that Christianity is the most confused religion in the world. Well... This is, this is one of the, the true things, is that getting clear on the message of Christianity, getting clear on what Paul talks about here in our, in our passage this morning, is insanely important. It's insanely important because of the amount of confusion that's out there. 
So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at this in three ways. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. If, if that's helpful, you can take that out and take notes. Some of you are like stenographers, and that's awesome. Some of you are like, just need little words. That's great, too, or, or nothing. But we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at getting the message. We're going to look at giving the message. And we're going to look at going with the message. Okay, Getting it, giving it, and going with it. And what I think we're going to see is this, that if there's no message, there can be no mission. And frankly, if there's no mission, we probably haven't gotten the message. If there's no message, there can be no mission. If there's no mission, we haven't grasped the message. So let's, let's, let's start with getting the message. Okay? The message of Christianity is both maddeningly simple and very difficult for us to get. And these first few verses communicate that. Now, we're kind of jumping into the middle of an argument. As you noticed, I started off with the word because, and some of you are English teachers, and you know you don't start sentences with because. It's not the beginning of a sentence. So we're jumping into the middle of an argument. Uh, And we're into the middle of what Paul is trying to do, and a point that he's trying to make. Um, And and this letter of Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote is kind of like, it's kind of considered his masterpiece. Most of his letters are written kind of um, on the move. Like he's heard of an issue and he's, he's got to write a response to some church that he started somewhere and he's heard they're in trouble. They've, they're confused about something. He's writing it on the move. Scholars will tell you that the book of Romans was written with a lot of forethought, a lot of planning. It's very systematized. It's very, it's very organized. Clearly he took his time and it was very careful with what he's saying. And in this section, the section we've jumped into, it's really about how the gospel... The central message of, G- of Christianity is, a, is for both Jews and Gentiles. And, and some of you know this, some of you don't. In the, in the first century, if you, if you were a Jew in the first century, you believe there were two t- kinds of people in the world. There's Jews and there's everybody else. And you call them Gentiles. Okay? There's, not, there's not all these different peoples. There's, well, you're either one of us or you're one of them. And Paul is saying in this section that the gospel of Jesus, the central message of Christianity, is just the same message, in fact, is for everyone. Okay? So look at what he says. He begins this in in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. Now, there's a ton of churchy lingo in here that I think some of us assume we understand and others of us are really clueless on. So I want to break some of that down before we get to exactly what he's saying. Let's start with that word saved, right? Now, we're in the Bible Belt. I mean, we're kind of the upper end of it. But we are in the Bible Belt. And, and so getting saved is normally something that's associated with walking an aisle, maybe, um, maybe getting doused in a river, you know, something like that. Um, but, but even saying the word saved presupposes that there's something you have to be saved from. So we can talk about getting saved, but what does it mean? Like, when he says you're going to be saved, what do you save from? Well, it's, it's basically this. According to the Bible, all of humanity is alienated from God. They're all separated from him by this thing called sin. And what sin is, is it's not necessarily immorality. It's a betrayal of God. It's a relationship breaker. Okay, it's when you've betrayed another person. And when we betrayed him, like with all other betrayals, it brought guilt. We get this, right? You've been betrayed. I've been betrayed. We do the betraying. It brings guilt. And so God, God uh, created all things. We rebelled against him and we became guilty. And, for, and judgment for that guilt is basically the bearing the weight of that betrayal for all eternity. The Bible calls that hell. Okay? Now let me be clear. 
Hell in the Bible, if, if, you're, if, if you're a purveyor of horror movies, but not necessarily purveyor of scripture, right? Hell in the Bible is not a place ruled by little red dudes with horns and tails. It's a place of judgment for all who are there. Okay? That judgment is due to the fact that you and I, have, and all of humanity, has not loved, we have not loved God with all of our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. None of us have. And so when the Bible says saved, what it, talks, what it means is being rescued from skipping on our merry way into that. It's not like, um, you know, those, those images in movies and things like that of like shadow beings dragging people down. It's being rescued from skipping on our merry way, okay? So that's what being saved is. And that phrase, God raised him from the dead, is important too. Because you see, Christianity is stubborn, obstinately stubborn about the idea that events in history matter. It's actually unique among religions for that. Um, most, most world religions are big on ideas and not necessarily events. But those events, all they tend to do is corroborate the ideas. But in Christianity, events matter. Events in time matter. Especially the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. And when, when, the, when the New Testament talks about Jesus rising from the dead, that is not a metaphor. It's not meant as a metaphor for someone's religious experience. It's something that is kind of put out there today. Or, or that it's um, the confused babblings of primitive first century people. Paul is talking about a historically verifiable event. And here's what I mean by that. History is not verifiable scientifically, right? Science is about having a theory. You test that theory, reproduce something over and over and over again, and then you can confirm your theory to be law, right? History is not verifiable in that way. You cannot scientifically prove that the Battle of the Bulge happened. You can't recreate it, even if you tried. I mean, you can... I guess you can get a bunch of dudes in uniform shooting paint pellets at each other, but it's still not the Battle of the Bulge, right? Uh, History is verifiable by evidence and especially witnesses. And so when the New Testament talks about the resurrection, it is laying that down on witnesses. And, And yes, people in the first century knew that you don't rise from the dead. Like, dead is dead. You don't come back, right? Like, that that's the way that worked. That's why it was such a big deal. That's why it was such a big deal. So that's what he means when he's talking about being raised from the dead. Last thing he talks about that I want to point out is uh, this thing, confessing with your mouth. Confession, uh, apart from our societal narrative, is not going into a wooden booth to talk to somebody behind a screen. Um, That's not what he's talking about there. In Greek, which is the language the New Testament was written in, that word confess means to bind yourself by an oath. It's a legal term. It's to, it's to proclaim that something happened in an, in a, like, like you would um, set yourself up to, to make a case in front of a jury. You're binding yourself. This is the truth. I am saying this is the truth. And if it's not, you know, so help me God. Right? Okay? So, here's how this fits together. Salvation, Paul says, comes because your belief in the core of your being that God raised Jesus from the dead has resulted in you placing your life, confessing, you're placing your life under his lordship. You're confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay? 
And, but, but this is explained a little better as we look through verse 10. It explains how this works, and it does it with this little word, justified. Okay? Do you see that there? Look in verse 10 again. It says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. Now, this is the core of everything, friends. Justification is not um, getting yourself out of doing something wrong. It's not like, hey, I'm, I'm somehow coming up with excuses for why I did something bad. Justification in the Bible is being made right with God. It's being made right with God. It's, it's dealing with the fact that we have this guilt born out of our betrayal, but something is happening that is making us right with God. And it's not just getting a blank slate In fact, it's not that at all. If it were just that, it wouldn't be really great news. Being justified in the scriptures is not being given a blank slate. It's being given a very full slate. It's just not full of our stuff. It's full of the righteousness, the holiness, the perfections of Jesus. This is what is so different about Christianity. Because religions tend to give you, and look, I, I studied these in college. My undergraduate degree is in comparative religion. Like we, 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 religions give you a list of things to do to make you right. Everybody agrees that something's jacked up in the world, right? Nobody, nobody kind of walks around with, with flowery glasses and believes that everything's okay and we're just all going to be okay. For the most part, we all, are, we all understand the world's jacked up. And, and what happens is we, we tend to think, okay, and this is the way that religions work this out. We have, here's our path to make things right. Maybe it's pillars that you follow, or a 12-fold path, or some other set of rules that you do. But it's something that you have to do to get yourself right. But here, here in the New Testament, with what Paul is saying right here, in one of his clear statements of this, is that being right with God is something that comes to us, not something we do. And it comes to us by his free grace, right? Christianity is not about learning to do how to do better, because you can't and neither can I. It's not about better rules to follow. It's about getting a better ruler who followed them for you. It's about Jesus living perfectly and dying sacrificially for us. And so we place our faith in him. We're united to him. United to him. So that his perfect life becomes ours. His death for sin becomes our death for sin. That's why we can be justified. Because he was. And we're united to him. We are justified. Not just having a clean slate, but a slate full of the perfection of Jesus. Okay? We clear? Okay, good. Because let's keep going, because this gets a little bit more controversial. Look down at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Okay? Now, let me make this point quickly, because we're going to come back to it. What Paul means by this is that and when he says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, and again, uh, Greek is kind of like the placeholder for everybody else. Okay, Paul was aware there were people that were not Greeks in the world. He's aware of that, hung out with them, but he's using it as a placeholder for everyone else. When he says that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, what he's saying is everybody in the world is in the same boat. Which is important because in Paul's day, tribal deities were normal. Tribal deities, you know. The funny thing is about that, though we don't call them that, they're very normal today too. It's this weird myth that pluralism was created by, uh, by uh, Western society in light of the kind of the postmodern era, and that's not true at all. 
Pluralism was alive and well in the first century, and Paul is confronting it. Because you see, what tribalism ultimately says is that I'm okay. I'm right because I'm part of this ethnicity, this tribe, from this region, part of this culture. But the Bible says that there is one God, one God, who is Lord of all, who created all things. He's Lord of all. Now, you did notice that he said that word Lord here and he had said it previous, right? And who, who was it said previously about? It was said previously about Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so what Paul is saying is that no matter where you are, where you're from, Jesus is the Lord. Now, you may not acknowledge him as Lord. And there's, look, some of us in this room, we don't acknowledge him as Lord. I'm like, what are you talking about? I think that's crazy. That dude's dead. Okay? Some of us don't acknowledge him as that. But the Bible would say that that's what he is. But here's what this also means, and here's where it gets a little more controversial. This is where the Bible would be stubborn about the fact that there are not many ways to God. If the Bible is right that the issues that we have, that our issue, your issue, my issue, everyone's issue, is that we are irreparably broken. Okay? Sinful, not just in what we do, but in who we are. And in need of rescue then all these rules of other religions, no matter how, how uh, virtuous, how wonderful, how uh, connected even with some things we see in the Bible, no matter what we see in those rules, they're not going to help, right? Because if you're drowning, getting rules isn't going to help you not drown. You need someone to rescue you. And so if they would work, even if, even if those rules would get you to a God... They're certainly not going to get you to the God that the Bible talks about. Because Jesus is Lord. So we're in the same boat, but we also have the same answer. Look in verse 13. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Paul is quoting here, and some of your Bibles will have that in quotations or maybe italicized. Paul's quoting here from uh, an Old Testament prophet, a dude by the name of Joel. Okay, Because here's the point. Tribalism also says, if you want favor with our deity... You know, if you want favor with our particular regional God, then, then you have to be like us. You have, to adapt, you have to adopt our culture. You have to adopt our way of doing things. Keep our customs. Keep our rules. But Christianity says, that's not at all. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. All you have to do is call on the name of Jesus. You have to place your faith in Jesus. Yes, Christianity says stubbornly, he's the only way. But yes, it also says that this way is open to all. This is not something you have to go and, and, and uh, kind of work to get all the rules right. It, it is open to all, all without pause. Everyone means everyone. And, and, and don't glaze over on this, because some of us start to glaze over. We've heard this all our lives. There are no preconditions on this. You place your faith on Jesus and he saves you, not according to your worth, but according to his. Not according to what you've done, but according to what he's done. So it's not clean yourself up and come to Jesus, nor is it you're looking pretty good so you can already get in. It's he, he rescues you based on what he has done, not based on what you and I have done. So that's getting the message. Now let's look at giving it, because that raises the question of how belief happens. Because everyone, when he says everyone who calls, and that's a pretty broad category, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord? It's a huge category. But you and I all, we know that not everyone does. So how does that work? 
Especially when you're calling the name of a Lord who's unknown in most of the world, at least at the time. It'd be a little tough. So look at verses 14 and 15. Paul sets up this progression. You can't call on someone whom you've never believed in. And you can't believe in someone you've never heard of. You can't hear unless someone preaches. And someone can't preach unless they're sent. Right? That makes sense. It's a nice logical progression. That belief is going to have to happen because... Or calling on someone is going to have to happen because you believe in him. And believing in him is going to have to happen because you actually heard about him. And hearing about him, someone's going to have to tell you. You you get the idea. But the the logical progression is important for a reason that strikes us funny. Because you see, in our culture, you and I, we've... I don't know if you necessarily believe this, but you've certainly taken part in something that's like this. We tend to think that people are justified, made right with God, by death. Right? We tend to believe that you are made right with God by dying. There's something about someone... It doesn't matter how like messed up a dude is, when they die, suddenly they're like everyone's best friend and they were great. Yeah, they might have been a little grumpy once in a while. But if there's a place... Yeah, hereafter, where that person's not, I wouldn't want to, like, we, we think that. That somehow, when someone dies, they suddenly become right with God by virtue of, honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But Paul is clear. You have to call on Christ. You have to place your faith in him. And you can't do that if you don't believe in him. And you can't believe in him if you never heard the gospel. With me? This is what he's arguing. If we were made right with God, justified by dying, then Paul's wasting his time. Why is he even doing this? Like, what's the point? Right? And if you die and then you have this added chance to hear the gospel, what Paul is saying makes no sense. The logic here is clear. And that leads us to the cause, a central cause. Look, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, uh, he, he says this, he says, Not everyone has obeyed the gospel. Now that's a funny phrase, because obeying the gospel is not normally the way we put it, right? We think of the gospel as like a, an offer. And you don't obey an offer. You either accept it or decline it, right? How many credit card offers do you get a week, a month, it's not obeying it if you, you know, it's, it's, it's accepting or denying it. But you see, if Jesus is Lord, King of all the universe, and his call to repent and place your faith in him, live under his lordship, if he's Lord of all, it isn't just an offer. It's not an offer, it's a command. But it is a command of a king who wants good things for us, and in fact, died to secure those good things for us. And so then in Paul, in, in verse 17, says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, this phrase is a little confusing uh, because of that word hearing. So let me flesh it out for you. Um, you kind of, folks who love it when we talk about the original language, pipe in or hear, listen up real close. So in, in the original, in Greek, that word hearing can mean the, the act of hearing. It can mean um, like, you know, sound coming into your eardrum. Or it can also mean that which is heard. And more than likely, given the phrase, what Paul is talking about here is not the act of hearing, but the message itself, a report. But it's not just any report, it comes through the word of Christ. In other words, faith comes through the message of the gospel, the message whose content is the saving work of Jesus. And that is what the word of Christ means. Because, listen, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. 
It's a title, a title that carries a load of expectations for anyone who's read the Old Testament. Because the Christ, the Messiah, is the one who would come to defeat sin, death, and hell. The Christ is the one who would end our great exile and alienation from God, the God that we were made for. The Christ is the one who would bring justice and righteousness and mercy to the world. The Christ is the one who would bring down evil and who would ultimately bear our sins. If the message does not communicate this, it is not the gospel. And we have no promise, listen to me, we have no promise that faith can come from that message. Only this one. If the message is about the benefits of Christ, apart from Christ, the blessing of God apart from Jesus, it's not the gospel. If it's about the felt needs that we have apart from our neediness because of sin, if it's about blessings apart from the curse that was taken from us, it is not the gospel. And we have no promise from God that saving faith will result from it. Listen, Christians today, we love to talk about your best life now. We love to talk about all of the many blessings that God is willing to give, but we don't want to talk about the things that keep those blessings from us, which is our sin and our need of a Savior. You can't have the blessings apart from the blessed one. This is the message that we bear. And if we do not bear this message, we are not on mission. And frankly, if we're, if we're not on mission at all, I don't think we've gotten this message. Now, let me speak a little more on two of these points by way of application. And the first is dealing with exclusivity. Because that's one of the things that Paul's talking about here. The exclusive claims of Christianity, and I've found in talking with non-Christians, and even to some Christians, that the exclusive claims of Christianity are probably the ones that, that cause us the most heartburn, right? I don't think anyone's really opposed to the fact that there's this loving God who is willing to, to come in the flesh and die for your sins. It's just the fact that this is exclusive, and, and maybe that's true of you this morning. And I think that, honestly, this makes total sense. Like, if you're here and that's one of your doubts and one of your frustrations, I, I get it, man. That makes total sense because of the cultural air that we breathe. Because you see, we've been taught that truth is relative, or at least perspectival, right? What did Obi-Wan say to Luke? You'll come to find, Luke, that a great many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on your own point of view, right? Alec Guinness, YouTube it. All right, so uh, that's one of the things that w- what we think. What that means is that we tend to place religious truth claims into the same category that we place, uh, that we place food preferences, Right? Well, I like steak. Well, good for you. I like chicken. You can have your steak and I can have my chicken. We're all good. We're all filled, right? See, all religious claims we put into that category except that one. Did you notice that? Did you? Maybe you didn't. I just made it a religious claim. See, we don't really notice that because it seems self-evident, but it isn't. To say that religious truth is relative, to say that it's culturally determined is itself an exclusive claim. You are making a religious truth claim. And what you are saying is that everyone's got to agree with your position on religious truth, that it's culturally determined, that it's relative, or else they're bigoted, closed-minded, or a fundamentalist. So what's often said is, look, if you were raised in Tibet, you'd probably be a Buddhist. Well, 
Sure. But that doesn't mean Christianity isn't true. That's no different than saying if you were born in 10th century Indonesia, you probably wouldn't believe that people could fly in airplanes. It has no bearing on the claim. At best, it's saying that you didn't have access to the information, but it has no bearing on whether or not that is true or not. And see, that's key because Christianity deals with events. That there was this person who was born strangely, who came in a, from an from a absolutely unique conception and birth. That as he grew, he did very strange, unique things that people hadn't seen before. And he, and he said things that people hadn't heard before. And, and people were drawn to him like they'd never been drawn to anyone else before. And then he began to speak about a death and a resurrection and everyone was confused. And then he died. Put to death by Romans. And then he came back. Events. Christianity deals with events, and you have to deal with these events. If you are here this morning and you don't believe a lick of what I've said, here's what I want you to think about. Don't go from here worrying about Christianity's position on X or our position on triple X, right? What you need to figure out is what to do with Jesus. What do you do, especially with the resurrection of Jesus? So I know, I know as well as you do that people don't get up once they're dead and been in the ground for three days. They don't do it. We don't live in zombie land, right? This is not something that happens. So what do you do with the resurrection? So what, here's, what I would, here's what I'd tell you. I would invite you to study it. I would challenge you to study it. If you've ever met Christians who are afraid of, of others who don't believe what they believe, studying what they believe, um, I'm sorry. But... Christianity is not somehow afraid of investigation. Read the Gospels. Do the research. Not on Wikipedia. Like real research. Okay? And see if the counter explanations for the resurrection make as much sense as the fact that this dude rose from the dead. But I'll tell you this. Christianity does not give you the luxury of living on the fence. Now you might stay there for a second or two. But either Jesus is Lord or he isn't. And if he isn't, who cares what he said about the poor or about sex? Because frankly, he was a liar. Or worse, he was just crazy. Last thing, getting clear. We need to get clear on this message because of the counterfeits. Maybe you've heard this, you know, like uh, the story used to go, I don't know if this is still the case because now we probably have machines that do this, but the story used to be the case that, that when um, law enforcement was trained to spot counterfeit bills, the way they would do it is not by studying counterfeits, right? They would do it by studying the real thing. And they would study the real thing because counterfeits can pop up like this. And so if you want to know the true Christian gospel from the counterfeits, and there are lots of them, you need to study the real one because the counterfeits pop up all the time. John Calvin, one of the fathers of our tradition, says that, that there are, this isn't a direct quote, but it's, it's very similar, that, that there are like countless numbers of nooks and crannies into which our hearts, in which our hearts have where vanity and pride and deception kind of grow. And that our hearts, he says in another place, that, that they're a perpetual factory of idols. Counterfeits to the gospel will spring up constantly. So we need to be sure what is the authentic. What is it that makes a Christian? Can I tell you, it's not a vague belief in God. 
Some of you are here this morning and you have a belief in God, but not anything else I said. That's cool. But you're not a Christian. We need to be very clear. But it's also not trying really hard to follow some of the select teachings of Jesus that you think are neat. Listen, if you think you can keep up with Jesus' teachings, frankly, I would argue you haven't read them. At least not really. Paul says here what makes a Christian, what saves, is placing your allegiance, your faith, on Jesus. He is Lord. He is your hope. Not you. Not me. Not this group of people. It is Jesus. And you do that because you believe that God has raised him from the dead, that his death for sin was accepted. Okay? Let me get even more clearer. What is it that saves? It isn't community. You're not rescued from your sin because you've been a part of a community long enough, a good group of people. It's not church attendance. As if somehow being in here gets you... Your card gets punched enough times and it's like, it's like you know, one of those punch cards that you take to Starbucks and eventually you get your free latte. Like, it's not that. It's, and getting that card punched doesn't make God like you. It isn't, it isn't feeding the poor, healing the sick. It isn't miraculous signs. And frankly, for those in our tradition, I need to tell you, it isn't good theology. It's Jesus It is Jesus that saves. Faith in Jesus alone. And how does that happen? It happens through grace alone. In other words, you can't merit it. You can't earn God's favor. And even if that were possible, you know it's not for you. Just like I know it, I can't either. And who does Jesus save? All who come to him. Your life may look pretty or not. Moral or not. Above the law or below it. We are all in the same boat. Have the same need. And the same answer. Jesus. This is the message of Christianity. The message that we take on mission. Big sinners needing loads of grace from a huge Savior who makes us right before an infinitely holy and unbearably loving God. And if that isn't the message, it isn't Christian. But if that is the message, then don't you have to take it beyond yourself? Doesn't it just compel you to do that? It's too good to keep to yourself. Because we are messed up, way more messed up than we'd like to believe. We don't see a fourth of it. But God is more loving than we can imagine and knowing exactly who we are, came in Jesus to rescue us. There is no mission without that. And if you don't want to take that to others, I'm not quite sure you've gotten that message yet. So let's pray that we can get that even now. Lord, some of us right now in this room are tempted to think, well, that's that's just milk. (laughs) that's fluff that's basics we've moved beyond that Lord help us to repent may we never move beyond the gospel because it is from the gospel of Jesus that every other truth springs 
and that every other truth finds its cohesion and that every other truth can be lived out in love. For those of us here in this room who have never, ever either heard that or come to believe it, I pray that by your Spirit you would work now. Faith comes by hearing the Gospel. And so, Lord, we claim that promise and ask for every one of us in this room that you would build in us faith. Faith to see ourselves as we are and faith to see you as you are meeting us in our need. Receive the glory that is due your name for such a free and loving offer of grace. And let our hearts sing of it, not just in this place, but throughout our city. To all who would hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.